with us. Uh, it'll be our joy to support you, brother, in prayer as you engage in the ministry God has called you to. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn them to Acts 14. Acts chapter 14. For the sake of our guests, my name is Chris Patton. I have the joy of serving here at Grace Community Church alongside of Jeremy as one of the pastors. Thank you for being here with us today. This morning, we continue our series in the book of Acts. And our text today is the entirety of chapter 14. So let us now in this moment prepare our hearts to be addressed by God himself. Acts chapter 14, we begin reading in verse 1. This is God's word. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Verse 24, 
Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adelaia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. May God bless the preaching of his word and write its eternal truth upon our hearts. July 25th, 1969, a Time Magazine article reads as follows, the ghostly white-clad figure slowly descended the ladder. Having reached the bottom rung, he lowered himself into the bowl-shaped footpad of Eagle, the spindly lunar module of Apollo 11. Then he extended his left foot cautiously, tentatively, as if testing water in a pool, and in fact, testing a wholly new environment for man. After a few short but interminable seconds, U.S. astronaut Neil Armstrong placed his foot firmly on the fine-grained surface of the moon. The time was 10.56 p.m. Eastern Time, July 20th. 1969. Pausing briefly, the first man on the moon spoke the first words on lunar soil. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. After centuries of dreams and what you might call prophecies, the moment had finally come. Man had broken his terrestrial shackles for the first time and set foot on another world. It was an amazing moment in history. Many of us weren't yet born. It was the first time ever a team of men had set out from Earth to explore another world, as it were. In Acts chapters 13 to 14, in what is commonly known as Paul's first missionary journey, For the first time ever, a team of men set out with the specific goal of taking the gospel into the Gentile world. Over the course of history, some dreamed of and in a sense prophesied a day when a man would walk on the moon. Likewise, the Old Testament and Jesus himself anticipated a day when not only Israel, but people from every nation would experience God's salvation. Indeed, this is the reason that Jesus came into the world, died on the cross, and rose again from the dead. He did so in order that he might gather for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and language under heaven. Some of you may recall in Acts 1, verse 8, it's been a number of months since we were there, Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and to where else? You can say it out loud. To the ends of the earth. Prior to chapter 13, the gospel had already gone to Judea and Samaria. Judea was Jewish territory, and Samaria was home to the Samaritans, who were half-Jewish. Then in chapters 13 and 14, where we've been past few weeks, and we are today, in fulfillment of Jesus' own words, along with Old Testament prophecies, a small team of men, in a very real sense, took the first step as it were, to the ends of the earth. Yes, it was a small step, but it was also a giant leap because of its huge impact on the future course 
of gospel mission. It was a momentous event in salvation history. Because of what happened in Acts 13 to 14, the kingdom of God is no longer restricted to one people group or nation. It is even now going to the very ends of the earth, even as we heard about a few moments ago from our brother, Rich. The message of Jesus is now going to the whole world. Here in chapter 14, our text today, which we just read, the Apostle Paul completes his first missionary journey, or what might be better called his first church planting journey. On this journey, he went to Cyprus, then to Perga, and then from there to cities that were part of the Roman province of Galatia, which is located in modern-day Turkey. Those cities that he traveled to were Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and then his last stop was the city of Derby. Most scholars believe that it was those churches, the churches the Apostle Paul planted on this missionary journey in those cities that Paul, Paul later wrote to when he penned his letter to the Galatians. Last week, we read, we read about Paul's proclamation of the gospel and his fruitful ministry in Pisidian Antioch, uh, not to be confused here with Syrian Antioch, where Paul's missionary journey began earlier in Acts 13. Admittedly, it's a little confusing. You've got two different Antiochs in the same passage. Pisidian Antioch was located in modern-day Turkey, and Syrian Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas and John Mark were sent from, uh, is located in modern-day Syria. So here in chapter 14, our passage today, Moving on from Pisidian Antioch, the Apostle Paul proclaims the gospel in the Galatian cities of Iconium, Lystra, and finally, Derbe. At the end of chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas then circled back to each of the churches they had planted in order to strengthen and encourage the new believers there, as well as to install elders in those brand new local churches. Thus my statement, it's not just a church it's not just a missionary journey, but it's a church planting journey. Finally, at the end of our text, Paul and Barnabas returned home to their home base, the church of Antioch in Syria, and reported back to the congregation there all that God had done over the two years or so since they were first sent out on this mission. And their report, it was, it was a good one. It was that the mission, had been, the mission had been accomplished. The gospel had been successfully taken into Gentile territory. And for the first time, Gentile churches were planted and established. The wonderful news, is, as I think about this, brothers and sisters, that gets me excited this morning, is that this work that God initiated through Paul and Barnabas of proclaiming Christ and building local churches, he continues by his Holy Spirit through his people, including all of us, here today. As disciples of the Lord Jesus, we are we're involved in the very same work that they were, making disciples, maturing disciples, building God's church, even as we await, the and, await and anticipate the return of our Lord Jesus, who he says is coming soon. This ultimately is what our lives are about, dear brothers and sisters. It's about this mission that God has called us to, proclaiming Christ and building his church. And as we engage in this glorious work, our passage today informs our expectations. It helps us to know what we can expect along the way as we engage together in this mission that Jesus himself has called us to. 
Paul's missionary journey informs our missionary journey, so to speak. His road of discipleship, it informs our road of discipleship. While obviously our lives won't look exactly like his, (laughs) he was an apostle of Christ. There are still certain timeless principles which apply to all disciples in every generation that we can glean from what Paul experienced here in chapter 14. So, two principles that apply to all disciples drawn from this passage. Here they are. Expect tribulation and expect God to move. Expect tribulation and expect God to move powerfully. First principle, expect tribulation. At the end of our passage, after Paul and Barnabas had proclaimed the gospel, and seen God save many, they returned to those cities. They traveled back to them. What were they doing? Uh, Look at verse 22, please, with me. They returned to those cities. Luke, who wrote Acts, says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Notice what comes next. Saying that through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. It is instructive to us that when Paul traveled back to the cities and sought to pastor these young converts in Galatia, he placed a high priority on telling them that following Christ involved tribulation. He placed a high priority on this because he wanted them, as the text says, to continue in the faith. That is, he didn't want them to become disillusioned with the Christian life. When the Christian life turned out to be far harder than they at first may have anticipated. The apostles' own experience, even on this, this missionary journey, confirmed the truth that he spoke. That through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. You may recall that following Paul's Damascus Road conversion, the Lord Jesus came and said to the prophet Ananias of the Apostle Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And that prophecy began to be fulfilled here on this missionary journey. Last week, we saw that in Pisidian Antioch, after God saved many through Paul's proclamation of the gospel there, certain Jewish people stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, causing them to leave the city and then chapter 14, move on to Iconium. In Iconium, after Paul proclaimed Christ and God performed great signs and wonders through him, a great number, the passage says, of both Jews and Gentiles came to Christ. Following this amazing, fruitful ministry, we read verse 5. You can look there with me. An attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them, to stone them. The gospel's going forth. People getting saved. Miracles happening. An attempt to mistreat them and to stone them. Paul and Barnabas then moved on. To the city of Lystra. In Lystra, God used Paul to miraculously heal a man who was crippled from birth. And the people were amazed. They were astonished. They were astounded. They even tried to worship Barnabas and Paul, thinking that they were the gods of a mythical story that they had heard. Paul and Barnabas, of course, rejected their praise and gave glory to God, the creator of all, as the one who performed this mighty miracle. We then learn that the Jews who had stirred up trouble in Antioch and Iconium followed Paul and Barnabas 
just tracked them down, city to city. They followed Paul and Barnabas to Lystra. They incited the, crowd, the crowds, who then stoned Paul in, a, in an attempt to take his life, to kill him. They stoned Paul, thinking he was dead. They dragged him out of the city. Thankfully, Paul did not die at that time. The Lord preserved his life. Suffice it to say, when the Apostle Paul said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, he knew from firsthand personal experience when he was telling those disciples, and even recent experience, he knew what he was talking about. Years later, the apostle would testify in 2 Corinthians 12. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. For Paul, that was, that was his story. That was his narrative of following Jesus. Through many tribulations, Paul said to the new converts in Galatia, we must enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God here refers to the kingdom of heaven, refers to heaven. So the apostles saying to the believers in Galatia and to every, everyone who's a disciple, says not just to them, but to, to us as well. On the pathway to heaven, trials, tribulation, Suffering, it's not unusual. It's inevitable. You cannot, you cannot avoid trials and tribulations. That's what Paul's saying. He's pastoring them. He's carrying them. He's preparing them for what is ahead. He's preparing us, too. God, by his Holy Spirit, preserved this text for us. To remind us that as we follow Christ, trials and tribulations... They will be part of, not the whole, whole story, but they will be part of our lot in this broken, fallen world. While not all believers will experience tribulation and suffering as severely as Paul, all will experience tribulation. The Galatian believers and us. Jesus himself said to his disciples, you'll recall, in the world... You might have tribulation. Is that what it says? No. In the world, you will have tribulation. The New English translation translate the, translates the Greek word for tribulation as, as trouble and suffering. It says, in the world, you have trouble <laughs> and suffering. Anyone have trouble here? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. If you do, I hope you find the words of Paul and your Savior Jesus oddly encouraging. Matthew Henry writes, an old Puritan, Note, it has been the lot of Christ's disciples to have more or less tribulation in this world. Men persecute them, persecute them because they are so good, and God corrects them because they are no better. Men design to cut them off from the earth, and God designs by affliction to make them meet, which just means ready, for heaven. And so between both, they shall have tribulation. Do you follow what Henry is, Henry is saying? If you don't, here's the translation, all right? He's saying, in between the trials that come to us from the world around us, because we're living for Jesus, 
and trials that God sovereignly ordains to come into our lives in order to make us more like his son Jesus, we are sure to have tribulation in this world. Spurgeon has this to say about the matter. Tribulation will be sure to come to us. Christ tells us so. It may come in the form of temporal. That just means earthly. It may come in the form of earthly trial of some shape or other. It may come in the form of temptation with which wild a light upon us from our fellow men. It may come in the form of persecution to a greater or less extent according to our position. But it will come in the world ye shall have tribulation. In other words, <laughs> you might lose your job or you might lose your health or you might lose your money, or you might lose your family, or you might just be put in prison for proclaiming the gospel. But whatever way you look at it, you won't to get, get to heaven unscathed by the trials of life. In the words of a popular children's song that my kids used to sing when they were little, you can't get to heaven on a limousine. I want to ask you, dear brothers and sisters, do you believe that? I'm serious. Do you really believe that? As Christians living in the West, in the United States, I think we really struggle with this. I, I, I do. When trials, we can at times act surprised as though something strange and unusual and abnormal was happening to us. While we might never verbalize it, we tend to intuitively think that we are owed the good life right now and the here and now. That this is our assumption is revealed when suffering and hardship comes and we react. <laughs> Have you ever reacted? Trial comes and you react. We chafe, we chafe under the trials and we think we have thoughts go through our minds like, Lord, I didn't sign up for this. I hate to be the bearer of bad news today, but yes, you did. In the world, you will have tribulation. Friends, it is very right and good and healthy to not compound and amplify our grief in suffering with a false expectation that this shouldn't be happening to me. You know, we can experience the pain and difficulty of the trial, but then I think we add to the pain that we experience because we think this is abnormal, this is unusual, this is unfair, this shouldn't be happening to me. It's good for us to not compound our grief with False expectations. One of the kindest possible things Paul could do for the new converts in Galatia was to prepare them for what lay ahead, to tell them to expect tribulation. And that's what God says to you and to me this morning, today. He brought us here to hear his word, to hear him say this to us. Expect it. Expect it. Expect it. We are... You know this. We are followers of the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. Our Lord started out his life being born in a stable of all places. Foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests. But during his life, the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Our Jesus, our dear Jesus, laid his very life down for us on the cross. He suffered, he bled and died in order that we might be forgiven of each and every one of our sins, have our consciences cleansed from the defilement they produce, be adopted into God's family and be given the precious gift of eternal life. And he, he went through a lot for us. He suffered to gain all that blessing for us. As I just think about that, did did we actually think that following one who went through all of that, like that was his pathway, and we're like, <laughs> we're his disciple? <laughs> we're following followers of him? Did we actually think that like that was when we became Christians, like, oh, this, this is just going to be a picnic? 
This is going to be easy. I think somewhere our Jesus said something about a requirement of following him is that we take up our cross. Brothers and sisters, it is only when we realize that following Jesus requires us to walk through difficulty and trials and trouble that we are prepared to honor God in the challenges we face. Remembering that it is Christ himself who said, in the world you will have tribulation. That's not all he said. Jimmy quoted it this morning during worship. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. What did he say? I have overcome the world. What good news that is. You will have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Praise God that ultimately God promises to overcome all evil that happens to us. Every last bit of it. And cause all things to work together for our good and to bring us safely home to his eternal kingdom. Second principle of discipleship. We learn from Paul's example. This is a little bit more of a fun point. Expect God to move powerfully. Expect God to move powerfully. As has already been noted at the beginning of chapter 14, we see that in response to the preaching of the gospel, in our Iconium, a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. In that same place, the Lord bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs Signs and wonders to be done by their hands. In Lystra, of course, this amazing miracle took place. A man crippled from birth was miraculously healed by the power of Jesus. The end result of this ministry and the ministry that took place through this entire missionary journey, we see the result of it in verse 27. Paul and Barnabas, they're now back at their home church. They're, reporting, they're in Antioch, and they're reporting back what happened. <laughs> so look at verse 27 with me, please. We read, when they arrived and gathered the church together. So Paul and Barnabas get everyone together. This is their missionary report, all right? Here's what happened. They declared all that God had done with them all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So, here's the bottom line. Yes, there was suffering, but the gospel went to the Gentiles. Churches were planted. The mission was accomplished. And who ultimately made it happen? Who ultimately was responsible for the success of the mission? Paul? Barnabas? No, it was God. Look again, verse 7. Excuse me, verse 27. Paul and Barnabas declared all that God had done with them and how he, that is God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So we've seen how this narrative confronts our expectation that the Christian life will be easy. But that's not all it does. It also presses us towards faith-filled expectation that God will move powerfully in response to risks that we take for the sake of the gospel. Keep in mind, this whole journey started out with Paul and Barnabas, along with John Mark, who later left, just heading out on a ship to Cyprus, not knowing, not really having any idea how this whole, whole trip would turn out. Risky is a highly appropriate word to describe what Paul and Barnabas were doing. Their call, preach, the, preach Christ and plant churches in places that are hostile to the gospel. Their resources, three guys, eventually reduced to two. The gospel message and a whole lot of prayer. That's it. That's all that they had. In the world of church planning, that's what you call high risk. That's high-risk church planting. But to them, Paul and Barnabas, the risk was well worth it. The risk was worth it because in a prayer meeting, back in Acts 13, you remember, the Spirit of God himself came upon them and said to the church in Antioch, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which 
I have called them. In their minds, God said go. God said goes, so the risk was in a sense, no risk at all, so they went. That's what you call faith, brothers and sisters. No church plant training program. You know, in Sovereign Grace, church planters get trained. Lots of denominations have that. Lots of training, getting them ready for the huge task that is before them. No church plant training program. No grand master plan. No clever leadership strategy. What's the strategy? God said go and they went. They got on that boat to Cyprus knowing full well it would take a miracle. In fact, it would take many miracles for this mission to be successful. But they also knew. They also knew, brothers and sisters, that God was more than able to perform those miracles. So they stepped out. They took the risk. They got the ticket headed to Cyprus. They got on that boat, counting on God, depending on God, expecting God to do what he alone can do. And I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that the entirety of the Christian life, every step of the way, is like this. The Christian life is about living your life in such a way as if God doesn't provide, if God doesn't supply, if God doesn't move mightily on your behalf, then you are not going to succeed. If our lives, if our lives are so calculated as to remove all possibility of failure, then I would wonder if we are truly living the life of expectant faith that God has called us as believers in Jesus to live. Because the Christian life is about living in such a way that it doesn't make sense unless God exists. The Christian life is about taking God at his word and then stepping out in bold, courageous, expectant faith and acting accordingly with God's word. The Christian life is about banking your life on God who performs the mighty miracles that we see in this passage. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about being foolish. I'm not talking about being foolish. I'm talking about living, friends, as if Jesus is alive and God actually exists and he actually delights to meet and use men and women, boys and girls, like the ones sitting in this room. Just consider, evangelism makes no sense at all if Jesus is not alive and God does not exist. <laughs> but he does exist. And Jesus is alive. <laughs> Hence it is incumbent upon me as one of his disciples to be a fisher of men, to risk rejection and to share Christ with those who don't know him with expectant faith in the God who delights to save. God doesn't just call me to have an, a checklist of Christian duties and, okay, have your devotions, have your quiet time, evangelism, and I, I just better do it, and probably nothing's going to happen. No, he calls us, he invites us to have expectant faith. He delights to save lost sinners. So I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to risk my reputation, perhaps risk my job. I'm going to share Christ with this person who doesn't know the Lord, because I believe in Jesus. He is alive. He died. He rose again. He's on the throne. And we are caught up in his plan of salvation. We're going to do what he says. And we take the risk. Tithing, giving generously. It makes no sense of all, at all if Jesus is not alive and God does not exist. You know, tell an unbeliever, you give 10% of your income <laughs> to your church. You give more to other ministries and things God is doing in the world. I mean, that sounds crazy. And it is crazy. It's risky to do that. But God does exist. Jesus is alive. He does provide for our every need. So we give generously and we make prayerful, faith-filled, what some would think to be risky investments into God's kingdom. One of the glorious things, though, is as our story illustrates, 
As we step out and take risks for the cause of Christ, the Lord delights to meet, for us, meet us, provide for us, and he delights to use us. That's the kind of God we serve. That's what he delights. That's his character. That's what he is like. Consider what God did here. Just consider it through Barnabas and Paul. The gospel was preached. They moved into towns, preached the gospel. Pray for the sick. People are miraculously healed. Churches are planted. God then used mightily for the spread of the gospel. All because two men in the church who sent them stepped out and took a risk. It's incredible. Well, isn't it incredible what God did here? Now, that doesn't mean that, this doesn't mean here that when we step out to do something risky for the Lord, it's going to always be easy. Or that everything is guaranteed to turn out like you hope or expect. Failure, in the sense that things might not turn out as you would hope, is always a possibility. Ministry is like that. Even the Apostle Paul himself had many disheartening disappointments in ministry. I mean, if you, if you doubt what I'm saying, go read 2 Corinthians 1 about the time that Paul despaired of life itself. He was so discouraged about the opposition and trials that he was facing. So failure is a possibility, and it can work that way, where you step out in ministry and step out in some venture some way, and it's, it didn't produce the fruit that, that you had hoped. Yet I want to say this. God looks at the heart, and he is greatly glorified and pleased. Your Savior is greatly glorified and pleased when you, with your sincere, faith-filled risk. He's pleased with it, even when that risk-taking doesn't produce what you had hoped it would produce. Just think about this with me for a second. Which is better, to never take risk? Never, ne never step out in faith? Never try something that has the possibility of failure? Or to take prayerfully considered faith-filled risks in the mission Jesus himself gave us in an attempt to give our Savior the worship that he deserves. That's what this is about. This isn't about our glory. It's not about making a name for ourselves. It's about making a name for our Savior, the one who bled and died and suffered to us. We love him so much. We want to live lives of worship for him. And because of that, we can't help but take in some risks. We want to see him glorified. We want to see his name lifted up. Dear friends, our job is not to always play it safe, but instead to step out in faith as we believe the Lord is leading us to do. Uh, and the results are not in our hands. They're in God's. And all that, all, all that said, in some ways by way of qualification, I do want to point out here, a risk is a risk because there is not only the possibility of failure. Do you hear me? Do you hear me, church? A risk is a risk because there's not only the possibility of failure, there is also the possibility that God will bless your risk beyond what you could have ever asked, dreamed, or imagined. There is a possibility God will do for you, for me, for us as a church, what he did for Paul and Barnabas. It's possible you will take a risk and at the end of it be able to say, I took this risk, it was painful. It was difficult, it was hard, but look what God did. <laughs> look at the ministry we accomplished in God's strength. Praise the Lord. John Piper has a lot to say on the topic of risk. Um, just go to the Desiring God website and type in risk, and you'll get a lot of great wisdom about taking faith-filled risks for, for the glory of God. And he, he said something on this topic that really really struck, struck me, and I think this is wise pastoral counsel. So he says, says this, My experience now after 32 years in the ministry of the Word is that very little happens of any significance in an individual life or a church or a family or an organization that does not involve taking risks. Let's back up and read it again, all right? 
My experience now, after 32 years in the ministry of the Word, is that very little happens of any significance in, in an individual life or a church or a family or an organization that does not involve taking risks. And so I want things to happen in your life. I want you to be able to accomplish things that you never dreamed for the cause of Christ. And I promise you, you don't have to be a big, great person in order for God to use you to do extraordinary things for him. But you do need to take risks. (laughs) You do need to take risks. I want to apply what he said to our church. Dear brothers and sisters, we don't need to be a big, great church in order for God to use us to do extraordinary things for him. But with hearts full of expectant faith, we do, we need to take risks. What risks might God be calling us today to make? I'm glad you asked. I might have a thought or two about that. Paul and Barnabas, it's going to take me a little while to get there, but you'll see where I'm going. Paul and Barnabas took a risk in setting out on their journey to preach Christ and to plant plant churches. But I want to point out something here. There were other people who took risks in this story as well, and it's not as obvious. It's not as obvious because you don't see their names. But they were the new believers who joined the local churches in Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch, who remained there and built those local churches in spite of the imminent and ever-present threat of persecution because of their identification with those churches. Those people, those new believers who continued in the faith, who expected tribulation, as Paul told them to, and experienced tribulation, they are heroes. They're heroes. They committed to and helped establish some of those first century churches that became the mother churches, as it were, of all Christian churches that ever came into existence, including ours. So that's the first missionary journey, the four-way, 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 I can't say that word, four-way, into church planning in the Gentile world. But that was just, that was the first There were many more. Those churches planted churches and planted churches and planted churches. And so here we are today. I look forward to meeting some of those church members of these three churches in heaven and saying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for giving your life to building that church. In some other parts of the world, to join a local church is to risk your very life. And that's obviously not the case here. But even here, to a lesser degree, being involved in a local church and helping to build a local church, it involves risk. Why? Well, because you invest your time. You invest your money. You invest your heart, which is risky in part because the church can disappoint you. Let me change that. I'm going to edit my last sentence there. The church will inevitably disappoint you. You might be disappointed a little or a lot, but you will be disappointed because every local church on the face of the earth is made up of very imperfect people. To join a church is to risk being sinned against. To join a church is to risk investing in relationships with others that might disappoint or change When people for mission or other reasons move on from that local church. And I've known some believers, you probably have too, who over the years sadly decided that the disappointment of local church life, which is real, is not worth the risk. And so they stopped attending church. You ever know anybody like that? It's not worth the risk. Church is too messy. Too much trouble over there. So I'm not going to participate. That said, I remind you, every risk has a positive side. When you talk about risk, you can't just talk about the downsides. You've got to, as I said earlier, talk about the upside too, the positive. And the positive side is every local church has an opportunity 
a glorious opportunity. And if the band could, could join with me as we bring this home. Look at verse 27 again. And I, I just pray that the Lord speak, re-speaks this to all of our hearts. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Grace Community Church. Jesus is alive. Jesus is on his throne. And Jesus delights to work powerfully through his people. So I ask you in the days ahead, what doors does God want to open wide for Grace Community Church? If this, if this is what he is like, if this is his track record, what doors does God, by the Holy Spirit, if he's active here, and I believe he is, as he is in every gospel preach, faithful gospel preaching local church, what doors, by the power of the Holy Spirit, does God want to open wide in 2022, in 2023, in the years ahead for us? What does God, by his Holy Spirit, want to do? What does God want to do with you, with me, with our children, with all of us together? What miracles, what miracles, what great things does God want to do through our church. If he can do this, Acts 14, through two guys getting a ticket, getting on a boat, let your imagination go. What can God do through us? What will he do? What has he planned to do? What great things does he have in store? I, I, I wish I knew. I don't know the answers to those questions. I don't know the answer to those questions any more than Paul and Barnabas knew the, an the answer to those questions of how God would move from them when they first embarked upon their journey. They didn't know, but they went. They didn't know, but they had enough faith to take the step and get on the boat and go and then read your Bible again. Read it slowly when you go home. They did it, and then you get Acts 13 and 14. Direct connection between the risk they took and what happened. I don't know what God has in store for Grace Community. But what I do know is this. I can't wait to find out what he has. I believe that the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, would stir us to have that kind of faith-filled expectation for how he wants to move. Brothers and sisters, we will never know what amazing things God will do through us. We will never know unless we take the risk, we take the risk of continuing to wholeheartedly and sacrificially invest, invest our lives, our very lives in the mission that God has called us to together. May God help us, Grace Community Church, to take prayerful, spirit-led, faith-filled risks together in the days ahead. For his glory, amen. Let's stand.